the situation with ransomware has changed so that all ransomware exfiltrates data now. You pay that ransom, that data is still going to show up on the dark web. 99% chance it'll be used against you. I'm pleased to welcome Deb Radcliffe again on the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Since 1996, Deb has been embedded in the hacker and law enforcement communities, learning their techniques, lifestyles, and philosophies that make them unique. This is going to be a fun conversation, not only because Deb is such an expert on all things cybersecurity, but also because book two of her Breaking Backbones trilogy is out. Deb still writes articles, does research, and she hosts the Cybeat podcast on ITSB Magazine. Lots to dig into, so let's get started. Breaking Backbones, uh, for our listeners, can you just give a quick overview of book one and then where it leaves off and where book two starts, information should be free. The Cyber Thriller series uh, main title is called Breaking Backbones, and then each one has a subtitle based on the hacker creed, as it was told to me in the year 2000. And so the first book, Breaking Backbones, colon, Information Should Be Free, is about Globecom taking over the world through human chip implants and hackers rising up to break Globecom's network backbones. They did it in book one. I'm not going to give that away too much. But in the process, the lead character, Cyanthia, her hacker handle, she goes by the shortened name of Cy, C-Y, was shot in the back. She lost one of the men in her life at the same time. And it was a really traumatic experience for her, but she didn't have time to really deal with it because she had more problems on the horizon where she was dealing from a wheelchair. So, uh, chapter in book two, it takes off three years after book one ended. And now society has restabilized itself gone into more local networking as opposed to a global satellite-based network that the hackers took down in book one, and more regionalization, which actually is working out well for local economies. So they're trying to pick the pieces back up, but the bad guy still got away. The, the head of the Globecom board of directors turned out to be a Russian spy who was in there manipulating the entire world. There were a bunch of other crooked uh, directors or Boardcom Globe uh, Globecom board members, um, so they're being um, hunted down by a new AI that the hackers have control of. But Damien, the bad guy, also has a copy of the uncompleted AI, and he's trying to get to the developers to finish it. So this one plays on development, where we have a lot of the cyber issues happening today. It also has sort of a Terminator feel where the younger characters are now drawn in and Sai has to come to their rescue, sort of mid-book, uh, come out of um, her healing hiding center where she's been hiding off um, and come out and save the day. Her people that she loves are in danger on many levels. I can't give you a lot of details because I want you to read it, but it ends in a very interesting way that makes you wonder how book three is going to go. Let's step back and ask when you knew you'd be writing this trilogy, if you even thought it was going to be a trilogy. You've been steeped in cybercrime and writing about it, the good side, really, since its inception. And did you have a notion that all along that, you know, you picked up breadcrumbs along the way and kept them in some kind of file and then it came out 20 years later? What, how was that? It's funny because if you talk to my friends who have known me for a long time, they'll tell you that I've been telling them about this story for 25 years. So 
the timing wasn't right in the past. I had kids to raise, I had an income to make. And so the story percolated in my brain. Eventually I had the names of many of the characters. Cyanthia was Cindy Frank, former DOD forensics investigator. She was in my head. She was gonna graduate from the NSA Centers of Excellence where I've been for cybersecurity. I've actually been and listened to the dissertation programs at a university in New York for that. So she's, uh, you know, her personality was already sort of in my head. Her names, her Cindy Frank was named after a friend of mine who passed from cancer. Cyanthia was in my head for over 20 years. Desolation, the guy that's going to take care of her in my head for a long time. Dark Angel, the father of her first child in my head for a long time. Living in a cave off the grid in my head. All of it just percolated in my brain until I finally, in 2018, had the chance to sit down and start writing. That's uh, when I had a medical issue that sort of scared me and made me think, I don't know if I'm going to have time to get my story out. And so I did it. And then I was working for SANS and got laid off in 2020 because of COVID. And at that point, I just threw a lot more time into finishing book one, getting that out into production. And I have simply taken the time since then to finish this trilogy. No, I did not know it was going to be a trilogy when I started DaVita. Oh my gosh, I wish I would have. I still tell myself, why did you commit to this? But now that I'm almost done with the first draft of book three, I think, what am I going to do with all my creative brainwaves once this third book is out? Because it really is quite fun. It doesn't make you much money, but it's fun. And I get to show the world what the hackers and the cyber cops and the vigilantes and all the people I've interviewed over 30 years in this industry are actually up to, but I put it in a storyline that they can be entertained by as opposed to, you know, this is this guy sitting in his computer in the middle of the night. Like that's boring. So you've got to have action. You've got to have bombs and drone wars and cyber guys aren't going to fight a kinetic war. They're going to use cyber to fight the war, which is what's happening in all three books. There are drones, there are canine bots, there are hacks. There is a pacemaker hack in book three, for example. And that's the bad guy, not the good guy doing that. When life imitates art or vice versa, you took a little bit of both. It's uh, it's a two-way street. When you look at the news every day, Davida, you just sent me about Joe Sullivan. We've got another hospital system, an entire system that was hacked. And there is so much going on every day. I think people are almost numb to it. That's the problem. I mean, back in the day when I first met you and the, the Yahoo hack came about, that was a novel. And now it's true. The media will tend toward day two, three, four stories, especially this Joe Sullivan one. We can get into that. It's personal. And this is a big scare for CISOs. Let's talk about this because I know it's on the tip of your tongue. Yeah. This is legendary, and it could really change the way either CISOs work yep. or what they do and how people view the role of the CISO. So maybe we, we do a quick set the stage here. And Joe Sullivan was tried for the way he handled a data breach at Uber in 2016, and um, he paid the hackers quite a nice sum of money had them sign a non-disclosure and they were under the bug bounty program. Is that right? Yeah. He went to the bug bounty program to get them paid. And there was discrepancy in whether that was a cover up or the only place he could get the money. Right. He had some legal advice. Not sure if the legal team did a little bait and switch, but the prosecution said Uber had legal obligations around security and privacy. 
that the state's evidence would show that Mr. Sullivan undermined his obligations and he was in fact convicted. And I'll read exactly what I what I read so I don't get this wrong, of paying hackers $100,000 after they breached the ride-sharing company in 2016 as if it was a bug bounty rather than an extortion demand. I know you feel very strongly about this, Deb, and so let's let's hear it. I want your side. Let's start with what is a ransomware payment? It's an extortion demand, okay? The situation with ransomware has changed so that all ransomware exfiltrates data now. You pay that ransom, that data is still going to show up on the dark web. 99% chance it'll be used against you in the future, maybe six months, maybe a year, maybe longer. But that data's out, and when they say, oh, yeah, here's a little file, look, we deleted it, bull. That's total bull, okay? So... What happens to every company now that pays a ransom? Not every company that pays a ransom is going to be reporting it to the feds, to the FTC, or whatever agency, the FBI, it should be reported to. So that is a very chilling effect on organizations. This hospital that just got their whole system ransomware hacked, it's disrupting services. If they pay the ransom, they're paying the extortion fee. Their data is probably out there. Their patient data is probably already out on the dark web, in addition to being locked out of their systems. How does the CISO handle this? How does the interior legal counsel, the PR, everybody involved along the chain, why is it that the CISO is the one who goes to jail? It's very scary. I have a story publishing very soon in CSO Magazine about the role of the CISO and the business requirements needed. And when I did that story, I realized there's only 50 to 100 CISOs at Joe Sullivan's level. That's it in the whole country. Everyone else is pretty much an engineer with a additional title added on with no business skills, no background, no ability to work with the board, nothing. We don't have enough of those people in this industry. I know CISOs who have reported against their corporate advice, been fired and called into court over it years later after they destroyed all their documentation. So you tell me, do CISOs have a fighting chance? I'm beside myself. I don't know what to say. I've written for these people for so many years that it's almost like I wanna scream, cry and shout And I'm supposed to be an objective journalist, but I know their jobs, I know their lives, I know their stress, I know people who have actually had strokes on the job. It's not easy. You've been studying this a lot. You know, there's two sides to every story. There's three sides, four sides, whether it was legit, whether he should have reported it or not, or you're saying that some don't and he just got caught and he's being the scapegoat as an example as a scare tactic. I don't know, uh, but it's not going to bode well for CISOs and security practitioners because it's going to become personal. Right. So the best CISOs I know are talking to me right now about indemnification and and, uh, legal representation, that you should have that aligned before you take a job. The other thing is processes. Before you take a job, you need to know what their process is for reporting. It needs to be written and documented. Each player that has to touch the response has to sign off on what their roles and responsibilities are. This is going to drive more of that in the at least the Fortune 500, the ones that can afford a true CISO. That is the best advice I've gotten yet from my CISO friends. That makes sense.
You want to see so? Here's my here are my conditions, and it's going to protect everybody because I have a feeling maybe Uber was trying to save its own. You know what? Yeah. And said, well, we can't we can't afford to have that PR, so we're just going to lay it on him. And it just so happened he was at Uber versus somebody else. If he had been anywhere else, it could have been a different story. I don't know what Uber's policies were, if any. Throughout its history, Uber's had a very bad reputation for ethics. And this just is a continuation of the way Uber behaves because it's Uber. Its very existence was unethical, getting into the market, squishing out the regular cab drivers, forcing, you know, and working with governments, but in not a really pristine way to get their business off the ground. So this is just an extension of, to me, the culture at Uber. If he was somewhere else, it might not have been so bad. Although, I, like I said, I know people who work for Fortune 50s who have chose to report the breach when their company told them not to, and they still tried to throw that person under the bus. But I think those lessons, you know, we can we can complain a lot, but I think you're right. You know, chin up and what's next? And it's going to change the way CISOs function or security practitioners function and how, and the boards, the education, the board, I mean, CISOs have a, a seat at the board. And what does that mean? Because the boards are going to react to this and CEOs are going to react to this. And they, everybody has got to like simmer down and then take the next step. I think you're right. I mean, testimony from the public relations person who quit over this said they were making an absolute plan to scapegoat Joe. The chief uh, counsel said he was never told about it in one testimony. Then he got off on a whistleblower's fee or whatever. He was offered immunity. Then he went and testified that, oh, yeah, he knew about it. So why aren't those people being thrown in jail? It's Joe. And that's the part that scares me the most because it's a hard job. It was a hard job before this happened. So indemnification, making sure there's sign-off proper practices in place before you actually take the job, ask them, I want to see a lesson of your response plan, who's responsible for what, is there sign-off, is there responsibility taken on the part of every person who touches the project, what is their responsibility when you have something go south in the company like this. Um, you know, the, there was extenuating circumstances. The FTC was already after the company for a previous breach. They failed to patch it and they had another one happen while they were still dealing with the previous breach. So it looked bad for everybody, right? Whose choice was it to actually not disclose? Now, the, I think if I, I'm never going to work the job, so it's hard to say that I would be perfect. But most of the CISOs I know said, even in that situation, even if general counsel and CEO was telling them not to report, he should have reported. That was the mistake made by Joe. But there's 20 other people in the company who didn't report, including chief counsel, which, by the way, it was supposed to be their decision. It also speaks to how much power the CISO has either way, whether a CISO should make that call without repercussion, to your point about the other example where someone did and then got their hand slapped. And that's also a contractual issue where you can have right to quit and right to um, go against the opinion of the company. That can also be put in your contract clause, according to my high-level CISO friend. With the right reasoning, you know, it's all about protecting yourself. Who knows, maybe there'll be an appeal? I'm hoping so. The court, the latest news I've been looking every day isn't saying when sentencing is, what sentencing might be, 
or if they're going to appeal. It literally sort of sounds like he has a lame lawyer. The lawyer's like, well, thank you, court. That's literally all the lawyer said. That was his lawyer. So the other thing is that the CISOs are telling me that I agree with is really scary is you're taking cyber into a court of public opinion where these people know nothing about cyber. The prosecutors, the judges, the, the protecting lawyers, the defense lawyers, nobody knows the depth of cyber knowledge to even understand the series of events that went on, to even understand the difference between a bounty payment and an extortion payment, to even align what's going on here with what's going on with ransomware payments. They're not able to see that. So this is also another scary thing for all of cyber, I think, all of cybersecurity. We'll see how this pans out, and I'm sure we will see we'll see this at RSA. And actually, you'll be going to RSA, aside from potentially this, who knows what, what this would be. What other topics do you see we'll be following? Oh, yeah, RSA. So I want to put a little plug in for last year RSA blast, because one of the companies that I write a column for called Shift Left, it's syndicated on Security Boulevard. Uh, they have a life-size poster of me and a book signing at their booth. The company was named Gramatech. That made RSA an entirely different experience for me. In um, June of 2022, the next one coming up in April of 2023, they want to take my second book and have a book signing there. Great client, by the way. You know how you like to pick your clients, Davida, in the industry? So do I. You know, we're at the stage in life where we don't have to take startup jobs. We don't have to work for companies that stress us out. So this company does nothing but make sure that I'm royally compensated for what I do. And then they do nice things like, let's have Deb at our booth. Well, we got rid of 200 books that way. So it was a win-win for all of us. So 2000, and then in between that, I ran around and did my investigative work about, you know, what the trends are. And it was amazing. S-bombs were big in 2022. DevSecOps, way bigger than I've ever seen. Identity and access management, funny thing. Was never able to get these companies to consider themselves a security company five years ago when I interviewed them and talked to them about risk. Now they're all at RSA saying, oh, I guess we are a security play. So I think we're going to see more of that because we've got the White House and its security agency now trying to unify all of these different things going on around supply chain. Um, they're getting that software supply chain is rather scary, which they knew all along because I sat down in Michael Jacobs' office, the CIO of the NSA, years ago in this big old dark office with like six of his people with him. And he said, anything they say, you quote to me. And I'm like, okay, Michael Jacobs. And he had like this Hawkeye where he was looking at you and made you really nervous. I later found out from his wife, he looks like that all the time. They call it the stink eye. Anyway, back to what he said. He said, how are we going to make sure that Orange Book, when we go into commercial software, that we can control product like we do with our Orange Book for military hardware and third parties that are making it like Raytheon and companies like that? How do we actually move the bar so that works when we buy Microsoft? when we buy Unix, um, because we are going to have to use commercial software code. We know that, but we're scared. And it was quite an interesting conversation. I interviewed him and he was asking me those questions and I didn't, we had no concept of what supply chain quote unquote was gonna be back then. That was 1999. 
So here we are, 2022, and the White House is like software supply chain security and all of these initiatives and the software bill of materials and everything that's coming out. What I think we're going to see at RSA 2023 is more automation around SBOM. I just did an interview with Bob from MITRE and uh, Bob Martin, and he's running the software supply chain program there. And they're automating and tax and putting a common taxonomy against SBOM rules and controls. And it's not just for SBOM, it's for all of the software supply chain and the hardware supply chain that can be replicated and reused and applied to software controls and automation and integration down the road. So they're working with the IETF. So I'm thinking we're going to see more of that, especially with companies like MITRE, NIST, and IETF all getting involved in helping standardize and add taxonomies and uh, workflow documentation, everything we're going to need to be automated from point of project conception till point of software demise and everything in between. So I don't know how many years it's going to take to organize it. I do worry that we're going to have too many standards and ideals coming up that are going to confuse buyers, going to confuse developers uh, and product companies. But I think it will work itself out in a matter of about five years. And so we're going to see that at RSA. What else we're going to see? I don't know where identity and access management is going this coming year, but we are having a lot of hacks on multi-factor authentication now, especially on the phone confirmation side. So I'm hoping that we're going to see some innovation in that space because we haven't even gotten good at multi-factor authentication yet, and it's already being proven to be used against us. Microsoft is, is requiring it and their consultants and IT people are busily doing it. And meanwhile, the bad guys are just figuring out, how to, they're finding out how to infiltrate. And so we have to get better. Have you gotten a text yet saying we want to confirm your verification code just out of the blue? Not yet. I get them. Oh, uh, actually, I've seen that, which means it's get, you're get, you got pinged. Well, you don't respond to it and you're okay, but if you respond to it, they can actually get a session open to, say, your Google account or wherever they're saying you, you need to uh, authenticate to. So my husband, who's an IT consultant, has been trying to get all of his clients. They're usually small companies or medium-sized companies. So one person was telling him, I'm just getting, this is, didn't want to do TFA or MFA and said, I'm just getting pinged all over the place. My husband said, don't touch it. So it's, it's happening. The other area is going to be external threats because there's been a lot of fake pages going up around corporate executives and fake corporate executive pages. And I just did a story on uh, deep fakes where it started with that, where the founder of Binance was deep faked on LinkedIn and Twitter and everywhere else, then got their investors, legitimate finance investors to call into Zoom calls. And the video call was deep faked for 20 minutes, well enough to get some investors to actually turn over their money to shoddy investments. And the rest of them said, well, it looks a little funny. So they reached out to the founder of Binance and said, was that you on the video call? And he had to do a lot of damage cleanup from that. So it's starting already because just today on LinkedIn, there was a big post about it showed like six different fake executive pages on an image saying, you know, this is happening now for every major corporation. They're putting in a fake executive profile on LinkedIn. They're asking other people to link in with them. For what purposes? 
could be something like what we saw with Binance. Where do you think we've been proved in terms of protecting and where should companies be spending their time? And it's so dynamic that when you think you've got the right answer, it changes the next day. I think the way we've improved is awareness is up. Awareness is up enough for me to be able to sell my book to a mainstream audience, okay? Awareness is huge. The problem is, is the criminals have gotten more tricky. So if they can deep fake a voice call saying, I'm the CEO, Um, I want you, my CFO, to transfer $100 million over to this offshore account, and it sounds just like my CEO, how can I train my employees to be aware of that? I think they're going to have to train them to do cross-checks on everything, like double-check, pick up the phone, literally call the extension of your CEO, ask if he authorized that before you make uh, the transaction. The trickier these guys get, the, there's going to be a point where no human can discern they're being scammed. And so how do we protect against that? I think verification and cross-verification is going to have to be a point of doing business. If the CEO sounds rushed and hurried and says, I need this done right away, you still have to stop, pause, ask what the rush is, and say, why is there a sense of urgency? Because that's what most of these criminals bring with the social engineering attempts that they're doing is the sense of urgency, trying to get you to react first, ask questions second. But we're gonna have to train human nature to ask questions first and not to react until they have a verification. However that looks, it's going to have to be pretty seamless and it's going to have to be a process in place where employees can follow very easily. So you're saying you still need to add, there's no such thing as automated. You still have to add the human touch and even more so now. I would think so. Deb, always a pleasure to catch up. Let's reiterate where people can find your books on Amazon, Archway, Goodreads, Barnes and Noble. Search on the full name of the book, Breaking Backbones, Information Should Be Free, which is book two, or Breaking Backbones, Information is Power, book one. You can find it on Amazon.com slash Deb dash Radcliffe. Yes, book one was also a finalist in the Writer's Digest Indie Awards for Action and Adventure. So you guys, this is not a boring book. It's fun. So take a look at it. It's gotten more than 35 five-star reviews. um, And these are not forced reviews. These are voluntary reviews from readers. It appeals very much to the hacker community as well as the mainstream. And some of my best advocates for the book are actually CISOs who have read it and are bringing it to some of their employees for fun. And some are bringing it to college students so they can learn and enjoy at the same time. Deb, always a pleasure to talk with you. Aloha and mahalo. Aloha and mahalo. Uh, Stay well. Thank you, Davida. Always nice to get back in touch with you too. We go so far back. Our thanks to Deb Radcliffe for joining us here on the Look Left at Marketing podcast. We hope you'll subscribe to the Look Left at Marketing series. We're on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, if you have comments or suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear all about it. Thanks for joining us again on this edition of the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Till next time, be well.